Concord has had by anyone's standards a ridiculously successful career. Ulster fans will remember Tom as a powerful prop who was her nailed on starting loose head in one of the best Ulster squads of the modern era. He was part of Ireland's Grand Slam winning squad in 2009 and he was called up to the British and Irish Lions Tour of Australia in 2013. This is all despite only taking the game up when he was at uni. He was also one of the best shot putters in Australia. Tom's a really interesting and insightful speaker and I could have talked to him about his life, career and rugby for hours. I really enjoy talking to Tom, hope you enjoy listening. I've had a number of guys on from back in the day and also some of the current squads to do podcasts and, and chat with them because I think fans are, are really interested to hear about people from different different sort of eras and, and times at Ulster and I love chatting to guys like yourself and spoken to some of your former teammates and yeah they've, they've all been really good and I really appreciate you taking the time today nah, to look, any, any time Peter I'm happy yeah. to that's so we so don't good. get to talk about Ulster matches, though, so it's nice to listen <laughs> yeah. to every now and then. Yeah, oh, that's so good. Uh, like, everyone I've I've spoken to, like, you're really popular with, with ex-teammates and, and obviously with fans as well. Like, uh, how hard was it for you to move away from Belfast? You know, you made a bit of a life here and you're really respected and, uh, uh, and liked by, by fans and teammates. How, how hard was that decision initially to move away, obviously, to, to London and then and then move, move back home? It was... It was probably, yeah, I mean, probably the toughest decision I had to make throughout my whole career because, I mean, obviously I moved from Australia to Belfast in fairly quick turnaround uh, between when I had found out about the offer in Ulster to giving up a full-time job, full-time postgraduate study, fiancé, house, and moving the other side of the world was sort of two weeks turnaround. Um, So that was sort of, that was an easy choice. Whereas that decision, because, I mean, Ulster was my club, you know what I mean? Like, I, it was pretty much my whole, I mean, I played a little bit for the Reds before I left, but Ulster was pretty much the only club I'd played for, the only proper um, professional, you know, high-level club. So my friends were there. Obviously, um, I was married in Belfast. Kids, Both of my kids were born in Belfast. Um, it was sort of, that was home, you know, I guess it was so long um, for such a large part of my life. That was home. So... It was sort of one of those decisions where um, because of, I guess, the stress and, um, you know, of just that professional rugby and also the international rugby yeah. of, I guess most people were probably similar in that everyone wants to be in the team every week. Everyone wants to be training at the absolute top 100% every day. Um, it's not like people are just going to go, oh, I'm not going to bother with it this week or I'm not too interested. So it's just, it's sort of nonstop. You're always pushing. So while we're in Belfast and because I was wanting to learn how to play, I wanted to improve. I wanted to first make the Ulster team. Then I wanted to make, you know, the starting team. Then it was the Irish team. And it was always up and up and up and pushing and pressure and every game and every training session. And um, so it sort of got to the point then where, we were sort of renegotiating and I think Ulster had assumed that I was probably going to stay. Um, I had sort of decided that um, if offers came in from overseas or anywhere else that I would at least consider them. Um, I mean, London Irish came in with an offer. I was sort of at the point then where I was sort of 33, almost 34, and I had two young children then as well. And it was sort of like I was away a lot um, with, you know, the Irish team and things like that. Um, while the kids were very young. Even when they were born, I remember I flew out. I sort of 
drove straight back from a game in Galway, um, pretty much walked off the pitch, uh, got my car, drove the four and a half hours back to Belfast from Galway, got back at half two in the morning, I think. My wife went into labour at 5.36 that morning with my daughter. And then um, it was only that I was going through old jerseys that I realised I actually played in a game in a test for Ireland versus the USA or Canada. It was nine days after my daughter's birth. So yeah, I'd forgot. There's sort of gaps in that where I'd sort of forgotten um, how much you're away. So things like that. My um, my son's was due to be born when we had that quarterfinal away in um, with Northampton away the quarterfinal. Um, I didn't go with the team. I flew over with one of the supporters and their private jet on the day of the game. Um, I had a bit of a stinker of a match to be honest, but um, because Theo, my son was due. So it was sort of, there was a lot of issues around being away a lot when the kids are young. Yeah. So this was sort of a decision, not really about rugby, but more about if you move away, there's going to be more time because it was, if you move away, you're going to be giving up the Irish team yeah. because it was always, I mean, unless you're Johnny Sexton, <laughs> nobody gets picked from being overseas. So, um, and to be honest, I was always, well, majority of my career with arms off the bench. Um, you know, Jack McGrath was really starting to push through Ken Healy had sort of really cemented himself as arguably the best loose head in the world. Um, so, I mean, most people can feel comfortable in themselves if they're playing second best to the best loose head in the world. It's not the worst, worst position to be in. Yeah. Um, but it really just came down to what, what I was looking at for the family. And I think yeah. because it had been so high pressure, a real, you know, real pressure cooker at Ulster, not from the players and the team and the community, I mean, that was amazing. It was really sort of the choice between giving up that family environment to move away but to have more time with the family. So, um, yeah, long story short, it was the toughest decision in my career. But um, in the end, I mean, London Irish put a very good offer um, on the table. And no matter what any player says, let's be honest, money is always a factor. Um, and even though it wasn't the only factor for me, it did play a part in it. Um, it was a good contract. The main difference was it was for three years rather than two. Um, and I was then at that point 33, going on 34, um, three years. By the time I finished in London Irish after three years, I was a few months off 37. So um, that really gave me a good stretch to finish up my career and then make a decision of whether that was going to be in or not. So, yeah. Um, that's sort of what it came down to really is more time with the family, wouldn't be away as much, a good, um, a good, a good contract for three years. And then um, I guess the added sort of bonus was, I guess, an opportunity to live in London. So yeah. that all sort of put together. Um, if it was one of those factors on their own, I doubt we would have moved from, from Belfast. You know, the plan was always to stay in Belfast for sort of 10 seasons, I guess. So we've done eight. When I left, I'd sort of just hit eight. Um, or eight and a half or whatever it was. So the plan was originally 10 years and then we'll see how we go. So that yeah. fact that I had three years with London Irish um, just sort of clinched that, that yeah. little bit extra that, um, that sort of put us over the line, really. Yeah, uh, interesting. And it's a remarkable career whenever you back on it. And I'm sure you've had time to reflect now. But for people who aren't aware, tell me more about your athletic background. Now, you didn't have the same route into rugby as the majority of people in Ulster. I suppose there's that traditional route of playing from when you're about five, going through school, going academy, Ulster. 
whatever. Now, you had a very different path into the game. Tell me, first of all, a bit more about your athletic endeavours before Ulster and what sort of sport were you into growing up? Yeah, so I guess when I was very young, so starting off, it was just athletics. So in Australia, there's an organisation called Little Athletics where normally you start when you're sort of five or six. I think I started when I was probably four, almost five, um, and you just do everything in track and field. You know, everyone does sort of running and then hurdles and jumps and throws and you sort of just do everything. It's fairly all-rounded, but it's obviously an individual sport. Athletics is an individual sport. Even when you're competing in, say, a relay or a team, you're still individually competing, you know. So um, that was pretty much it for a long time. We, um, My brother was fairly injury-prone, so the contact sports and that were very much off the table for both of us um, until we sort of got to mid-high school um, where I was sort of fairly sporty and just wanted to play everything. Um, a lot of friends were playing rugby league, so I started playing a bit for school and um, actually forged a signature and a permission form for my parents to be able to play in the school team. And they actually only found out because I ended up scoring a couple of tries and got man of the match. So it was actually in the school newsletter a few weeks after. So that's how they found out about the rugby league. But um, went on to sort of play in sort of regional state teams and championships and stuff with that. Um, But then, ironically enough, went to the Queensland Championships and got a bit, um, I guess, frustrated and annoyed because of team selections. And I'd sort of been picked in the squad, I guess, theoretically as a starting player and was playing mainly off the bench and getting overlooked for certain other players. So I sort of spat the dummy with the coach and sort of said, that's it, I'm going back to really give athletics a try because if you throw, well, with my preference ended up sort of coming towards the throws because I tended to be bigger and a bit stronger. So the throws just came naturally to me. I decided to go back to throwing because I was like, if you throw the distance, you you know, you know either win or you get picked in the team and that's it's very straightforward. There's no gray area. Yeah. Um, so I went back to sort of focusing on athletics. Um, I mean, I played representative volleyball. I did athletics, um, obviously, to a representative level through high school and middle athletics. Sort of liked all the sports, but um, I guess athletics was always in the back of my mind. It was just naturally. And the older I get, I sort of wanted to be a javelin thrower because nobody really wants to be a shot putter. You know, first of all, everyone wants to be a sprinter and then, you want to try and do something else. Nobody really wants to be a thrower, but if you are a thrower, you know, you want to be something a little bit more prestigious like javelin or discus or hammer. You know, nobody wants to be a shot puller. Um, <laughs> if you look at the, the shot putters and, you know, they're not going to be getting all the accolades or, um, you know, drawing crowds really with their long, long leggings and physiques. But anyway, it came naturally. So we sort of went with shot put and, Through the end of high school, I actually got picked up through a a rural talent search through the Queensland Academy of Sport um, because they offered, they did just basic sort of athletic performance testing um, and offered you sports that maybe you didn't have access to because you weren't either in the city or at a private school. Um, And they offered rowing um, or track cycling, actually, but we chose rowing. So I ended up doing rowing for a little while with the Queensland Academy of Sport. and when I started university, it was still rowing. But unfortunately, that meant you'd be getting up at 4.35am every morning, row for two hours or two and a half hours. Then I was at university as well. So you'd be then at uni, however long. I'd probably be falling asleep by lunchtime. 
Um, you'd go back and do more training in the afternoons on ergos and weights and stuff. And then you do that six days a week. And then Sunday on your day off, everyone decided just for fun that they would go for a bike ride for three and a half hours. Um, so funnily enough, that didn't, I was sort of hung with that for a little while and then went back to shop put, which meant you could sleep until lunchtime. Then you just go to an all you can eat buffet for lunch. <laughs> And then you do weights in the afternoon and throw, and you can be whatever weight you want. So, Sounds better, sort of went back to that. Yeah, um, went back to shop put at university again, and was doing quite well. Like I, I sort of worked my way up and had won the Australian University Games a couple of times, and competed at the obviously the Australian the Sydney Olympic Trials, and was sort of always placing the top eight in Australia or there or thereabouts. You know, sometimes it was a bit higher, but. Hadn't really cracked the top sort of two or three. And then I got to 2003, um, won the Australian University Games, which was meant to be automatic selection for the world students. Um, so that was a big goal. And obviously the standard of world students is probably higher than the Commonwealth Games even. It normally would go Commonwealth world students than uh, Olympics. Um, but the selection committee had sort of decided that realistically, even though I'd won, I wasn't going to get any of the medals. I, and to... To be honest, they, they were spot on. You know, I was probably still a couple of metres off being anywhere near it. So they decided that it wasn't, I wasn't going to get picked and wasn't going to go to World Students. Around the same time, I'd started having a few dizzy spells uh, in the gym, sort of lightheadedness. I was weighing just over 140 kilos, um, went to the doctor, had blood pressure of, I think it was 165, 110, and it was a recommendation that I would start taking blood pressure medication at 23 or find uh, something sport-wise that was a bit more cardio-based so that I'd be doing a little bit more movement and exercise and probably something a bit more sociable as well. Um, and with UQ, so the university I was based at, where we used to train as an athletics track, the, the Tartan athletics track where the shot puts are just on the outside, all the rugby teams trained in the middle of the track. So you'd be training for shot put watching guys play rugby, training for rugby all the time. So it was always just in the back of my mind without really giving it a, a, a thought. And it was only that one of my friends from uh, the throwing squad who was a discus thrower suggested that he had some friends that played rugby. I should go for a bit of crack and just play in the sixth grade sort of social team, really just for a bit of fun. Um, and then that was sort of it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that, that first season, um, Started in the sixth grade and ended up within that first season um, starting in the premier grade, so the top level in Queensland uh, grand final. Played Queensland A straight away, went away to Manawa 2 um, almost straight after that. Played over in New Zealand in the MPC of Mata 10. Came back to Australia and then got drafted almost straight into the, the Reds uh, squad. It's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's unbelievable uh, and the way you say it it sounds so natural you know I started rugby uh, and then started to almost play at the highest level available <laughs> no, um, I, yeah I, I mean there was a lot of obviously from all the athletics background there was a lot of speed and power training that we'd done there's a lot of weights I guess my size and strength I mean with athletics also even with throwing you do a lot of short explosive sprints and jumps so the speed off the mark and that explosive power was sort of already there from years of training. There was just no real game awareness or fitness at all. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. there was still plenty to work on. That came after time. And I suppose, so, so I mean, 
you're obviously a, a natural athlete. So what were you six three something like that? And, yeah, six three, yeah. And 140 kilograms at, at, when you're doing shot put and at your sort of rugby playing peak. What sort of weight? Just to give people so, context. I probably sat realistically it was around 120. I think at times I, I gradually sort of came down. Um, I think when I was it was normally around 120. World Cup was probably about 115 because everyone was in a lot better shape and probably a bit leaner. It was always somewhere between 115, 125, depending on what time of year, whether we'd had a good Christmas or uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. everything, yeah. everything. But, um, I mean, as we got older, I definitely took nutrition, um, you know, body fat percentages and um, a lot of those side of things a lot more seriously, even though yeah. body weight never really changed too much. So. Yeah, that, that's. I'm always interested to hear a bit more about um, sort of uh, hard work and talent and the, the combination of the two um, that to play at the top level you have to have. Now, obviously, you're, you're naturally gifted as an athlete, having turned your hand at a number of different sports, took up rugby and very quickly excelled at it to the point where you were picked up professionally within a very short time period tell me a bit more about that transition from playing f- for the reds and then going to ulster how did that happen how did you end up at ulster who made contact with you just, uh, we're delighted that it happened but it just seems quite random do you know you, yeah uh, well it was sort of i guess what what triggered it was so the november internationals wallabies had just played england and twickenham twickenham had absolutely torn apart the wallaby scrum um Net, literally the next morning, I had a ring, a call from Alec Evans, who is probably the Australian version of Mike Cron um, with regards to scrums. He used to coach the Wallabies, and everybody in Australia, in the Australian rugby community, knows who he is. He's, he's very well regarded um, forwards coach, and he gave me a ring and said, "Listen, I heard you back from New Zealand. I heard you're big unit, and you can scrum okay. Why don't you come down to train? Um, train with the Reds. Ended up." even though they already had a full squad played um, off the bench for the first three games of the Super Rugby season, um, which was against Waratahs, Crusaders, Auckland Blues. So I'm not sure if John Afire was playing, might have been playing for the Blues, but I played against, I actually scrummed against Tony Woodcock in one of my first ever professional games, which is pretty scary. <laughs> I'm um, sure it was. And, and, um, and had Richie McCall laugh at me when I tried to ruck him in the back of the ruck as well. So... <laughs> Um, so that played the first three games but the way the professional setup is here is that if you play four or more games regardless of what contract you're on you automatically get upgraded to a full-time minimum amount contract Um, it's like a player agreement so and that minimum amount was I I mean I can't remember what it was 50, 60,000 whatever it was Australian dollars at the time but I played the first three games. So if I played, and that was the first three games of the season, so if I played at all for the rest of the season, they had to automatically upgrade me. Because they already had a full squad and realistically budgets were already spent, they had sort of told me, look, unfortunately, we can't justify playing you. You're not starting, so therefore we can't justify playing you unless we get another injury, um, like a long-term injury. So they sort of said look there'll be a contract next year um eddie jones had sort of called me and said look there'll be a contract next year but i realistically i needed to play um because i'd started late i still was learning how to play i just needed to play as much as possible and this meant that i was going to be sitting on the sidelines for you know four or five six months at least until the following season um and i needed to be playing at a high enough level to be improving rather than just 
maybe playing at sort of club level here, which is would be, I guess, similar to maybe some of the All-Island League. Um, but really needed to try and push on. So um, it was at that point where I sort of got in touch with an agent and sort of said, look, I have Irish citizenship. My mum's Irish, you know. Um, I also have English, right of abode, English citizenship if I need it. Um, if there's any opportunities overseas, I would love to, to explore opportunities because I would like to play. You know, I need to play and see what's there. Um, and I think... Obviously, they'd looked around Australia first and whether there was opportunity or not or whether people just saw me as a you know, mid-20s shot putter that was trying his hand at rugby. I'm not quite sure, but um, as far as I knew, there wasn't really any opportunity for me in Australia. So the opportunity came up, I think, with the RFU and especially with Ulster. They'd been in touch with Alan Clark in particular who sort of said he'd be happy enough to sort of try and take me under his wing and, and um, you know, there might be opportunities at Ulster. Um, if I was interested. So um, it was just then that I had to decide. I, and I mean, I was managing a, a, a training organisation at, at that point doing my postgraduate study in organisational psych here in Australia. Had just been engaged, had just bought a house very close to where the Reds were. Um, and then it was like, what, what, would you be interested in moving to Belfast? Um, which for me, I look back now and think it's the, it's a crazy, crazy decision that I made so quickly. Um, not that I wouldn't have made the same decision, but I look back now and think of how many things are in play. You know, I just said, yep, let's go. Let's yeah. do it. Um, you, you must, was it. I was going to say, you must uh, be very sort of one-track minded and ambitious. Uh, was there anything, I mean, what drove you to that decision where you were so intent on playing regularly at a high level that you give up ever, everything, really, do you know, you had a settled life? Yeah, I think re- realistically, and I, I think if there's anybody else in a similar mindset where they've been, I guess, very good at sport their whole life today, you know, I've been, I've been one of those nearly made it in a lot of sports. So athletics, I'd done very well to a national, international standard, but hadn't quite cracked it, you know. Rugby league, I'd made it to a decent representative level, hadn't quite cracked it. Rowing was rowing with Queensland Academy of Sport, but then sort of pulled out because it probably wasn't really the sport for me, hadn't quite cracked it. Um, so there was a number of sports where I'd been knocking on the door, but just hadn't made that final transition into fully making it as you would see it. And I guess I, in my mind, it was this was the last chance. This was my opportunity to really... If you weren't going to make it now, you weren't going to make it in sport, you know. So um, it was the opportunity to stop working. Because at the Reds, to clarify, I was working full-time hours. I was trying to train full-time hours with the Reds. I was trying to maintain a full-time master's degree as well, (laughs) all at the same time. So my schedule was like get up at 5.30, train at 6 till 8, go to work, come back at lunchtime for video reviews, go back to work. Four o'clock, go back to training, go back to work at six, work till about nine thirty, ten, go home, sleep, start all over again. And I was comparing that and then trying to study a bit on weekends. And I was comparing that to the guys in the academy that I was with who were young guys straight out of high school who were still living with their parents, had no expenses. They'd come down to train, they'd go home or they'd go out for coffee, they'd go home and play video games all day. Then they'd come back or have a snooze or whatever it is and then come back and train in the afternoon. Yeah. And... It was just like I, I, I wasn't giving it my my best. You know what I mean? I couldn't commit to it. So the opportunity with Ulster, the, the biggest part was it was that it was 
an opportunity to fully commit, full professional training setup, don't have to worry about working, don't have to worry about anything else and just give it 100% and see how it goes. And, yeah. I mean, that was a clincher because moved over just before Ulster had um, tied up the Celtic League in 2006. Yeah. So I obviously moved in with... Justin Harrison for a couple of weeks when I first moved in before I moved out. Um, and they obviously just won the Celtic League. So Ulster was on a massive high. Um, and it was a, a really great, positive, successful sort of environment. And then it was sort of coming in. And then uh, all of a sudden um, I was picked in the Island A squad to play in the Churchill Cup. So within, it was less than 18 months from when I first played rugby at UQ for that sixth grade sort of stuff within 18 months was playing for sort of Island A and then obviously had the bit of the off season and then starting um, with Ulster again the following year so yeah it was it was, yeah. it was pretty thick and fast but um, yeah. I don't know I look back now and it all seems like it just sort of fell into place but I talked to people that I knew along the way and they were like man you were <laughs> freaking you were knackered and you were exhausted and you were like yeah, was it was it a happy time for you, or were you stressed, or, or I suppose when you you sort of early twenties, what were you sort of twenty twenty four? Probably mid mid twenties, yeah, mid twenties. Because so, um, yeah, by the time I was playing with Ireland, I was twenty five because it was in two thousand and six. Um, to be honest, I don't, and I know there's a lot of which is a totally different discussion, but all about the, the concussions and stuff recently. There's a lot of guys that talk about oh, they don't remember a lot of stuff, but to be honest. I don't remember a lot of it either, but it's not because of head knocks and stuff. I think it's just so much happens and there's so much going on on a day-to-day basis and guys are so driven to yeah. just that. Your, your focus is so short-sighted in that you're going next training session, next match, yeah. next team selection. You know, every week it's – people would say it's stressful, but I look back now and I don't remember it being stressful. That was just how it was. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think a lot of guys that are driven, they're like, this is, this is how it is. It's not stressful. This is, this is it. You know, and a lot of guys thrive on that um, sort of, in, I guess, the hunger and that. They sort of thrive on that buzz of I need to keep pushing, I need to keep driving. So, it, I mean, I remember it as well and all the photos and everything and everyone's big smiles and I remember it as a great time. I don't remember it as stressful at all. I think it was probably extremely stressful, but I don't remember it that way. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, um, I mean, that first year as well that I was overseas, my fiance's so wife now obviously stayed in Australia. She was finishing her job contract and she moved over um, after sort of nine or ten months of me being over there. So it was, for me, very much single-minded, selfish focus on just myself and training and just getting used to living in Belfast and making friends and... Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, just... What, yeah, what, I, had, I had an absolute fantastic... Those first two years especially, I had an absolute fantastic time. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, the contrast of going from a relatively, well, an extremely busy life in Australia with your fiance to living with Justin Harrison for I don't know how long when you arrived and having that sort of, you're able to dedicate your time, you're living with the fellow rugby player and you're dedicating your time to training and playing. Must have been amazing. And whenever you came into the Ulster squad, what was the atmosphere like? Suppose it's difficult for anyone from the outside to integrate in, especially coming from Australia. And uh, you're obviously um, pushing for a place in the team. It didn't take you long to, to sort of make your mark and make great strides in, in terms of your, your rugby playing ability. But what was the atmosphere in that squad? You say 
there's a, a sort of high coming off the, the, the Celtic League win. And then, yeah, it sort of went through a bit of a lull, but then you were part of one of the best Ulster squads uh, in, in living memory, sort of 11-12 with the, the addition of, of the likes of, uh, well, the South African guys who came in and things like that. But what, what, was, it, what was the atmosphere like whenever you joined the squad? Was it welcoming? Was it... I, I get the sense you're you're sort of a very competitive driven person and how does that how does that marry up with joining a squad with equally driven competitive people all pushing for the same places yeah I mean it, it, I am very competitive but it also I guess at that point I just come in and my focus was I need to learn how to play properly first of all and just soak up as much as possible so I mean at that point I was probably on the fringes a bit. The guys that I became very close friends with and that, to be honest, were amazingly generous, supportive for me. You know, guys like Scott Young, um, Andrew Maxwell, I mean, Tim Barker especially, we, you know, the running joke was sort of Tim and Tom, but, you know, we'd be down getting a flat white coffee at lunchtime and just hanging out and relaxing. And um, You know, those sort of guys who were pretty much... They were the guys that sort of got me through those first, especially that first year when I was over there on my own. Um, I probably wasn't involved that much with the, the sort of starting team or the first team. I think I was probably just over there on the fringes in the squad, training, learning how to play. So that for me, that was my focus. Um, I mean, I only played a few games for Ulster that first season um, and then played primarily club, but... It was sort of one of those things where I'd started, I'd come over and I'd started playing with Balamina that first season, but they already had Simon Shaw playing with Balamina, who was obviously a very, very good tight head, especially at club level. Um, so it was sort of tough for me to try and come in. And I think obviously Ulster wanted me to play as much as possible, but they obviously had Simon Shaw as well and they wanted to win games. And if they've got a known entity, um, it's, it's hard to argue that they want to play him as well. So it was trying to work out him playing and me playing in the same position at the same time. And at that point, it sort of got to the point where I was like, okay, well, maybe we need to look at other things because playing Ulster A was only a couple of games a year and then on and off with Malone, uh, sorry, with uh, Bellamina probably wasn't going to be enough. Um, so that's where we then looked at, um, you know, maybe playing a loan club or something like that. And I think there was a few um, suggestions with premiership clubs, but... I think they wanted to guarantee that I was going to go over and just play every week. And then an offer came in from the Pertem Bs, which was sort of probably about fifth or sixth on the table in the championship, um, the English championship, so second tier. Um, so I'd go on loan over there for three or four months um, on the second half of that first season and just play just play every week. Funnily enough, um, the head coach at the time for the Pertem Bs was Steve Williams, who ended up obviously coming back to Ulster afterwards. Yeah. But... Um, so that was, that was for me that first season. So I went, then my wife um, came over and joined me in Solihull in Birmingham. Lived in Solihull, played with the Pertem Bs for three, four months, just played every week. Um, wasn't overly pretty, but I think from a scrummaging point of view, I mean, we had a guy in our team who was playing loose head. At that point, he seemed like he was probably about 50, but he's probably only in his 30s. Um, he played for England. There's a lot of really experienced scrummaging forwards in that championship that we sort of played with or against so for me growth wise that was amazing after yeah. that came back to Ulster again full pre-season for the second season then once again played a few games start of the season didn't really play a lot um, 
was playing primarily with Malone that season, so sort of changed clubs, played with Malone, um, which was, I think, second division AIL. The guys at Malone were amazing as well. Um, I still remain in touch and friends with all the guys at Malone. They were extremely welcoming, supportive, and I was playing down there. Funnily enough, there was a couple of weeks where I was playing with Simon Danielli and a couple of other guys who, at that point, Simon had been playing for Scotland and everything beforehand as well. So yeah. um, we had some, some decent players down there. Um, but once again, because there were guys like, I mean, originally when I arrived, Rob Moore was sort of still there, Simon Best, Brian Young, you know, these guys were sort of proven internationals. Um, it was always going to be a challenge to try and crack into that team. And then after, oh, I was sort of mid-season, later in the season, obviously, First of all, Alan Clark had finished up, then Mark McCall um, had finished up. So I, unfortunately, because I'd been playing a lot of club, because I'd been away alone, I wasn't really involved with a lot of the politics. And admittedly at that point, because I was fairly fresh to the squad, I was fairly naive to a lot of the inner workings of what was going on. You hear, hear about it secondhand and somebody besides you hear about this, you hear about Smallwood, yeah. you hear about Clarky. Um, and then obviously they just said, oh, yeah, Matt Williams is going to be starting as a new head coach. And, the director of rugby or whatever it was. Um, and that was it. This Aussie guy coming in. And it was at that point where I was sort of getting towards the end of that second season. I'd been there. My contract was going to be up soon that I had sort of said, okay, I need to, I need to try and get a run somehow. Because I hadn't really had a run again since the start of the season with Ulster. And pretty much just went into his office after, I think there was an opportunity where one of the guys had been injured or something had happened. There was nine guys who left for the Ulster season. I pretty much just went and begged him and said, look, please, just just give me a run. Yeah. That was pretty much it. I, I don't remember much else other than just begging him and saying, give me a run. I, you know, I will not let you down. I, yeah. I promise you I will do a good job, you know. Um, yeah. And to be fair to him, he said, okay, I'll give you a chance, you know. Don't let me down. This is this is your chance. Um, and then I started for Ulster probably for the next six and a half years. <laughs> yeah. so, it's worth asking, well, clearly. You know I, mean? I mean? So yeah, it's, yeah. Um, sometimes you just have to swallow your pride and just put it all on the line. And, I mean, like I said, after I played a couple of games then, and then there was a few different ups and downs and negotiations with contracts and stuff. And I remember it was... It was probably three weeks to go, two or three weeks to go before the end of the season. I finally got the new contract offer through and sort of went home with my wife and told her and like broke down crying. Because I thought I was going to have to go back to Australia, tail between my legs and like, that's it. You know, it didn't work out. Yeah. To whatever, you know. But um, anyway, it it all fell into place eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's really great to hear. Do you know, it's quite inspirational. You backed yourself the whole way from leaving Australia, people, did you, I imagine you mentioned there speaking to friends, family, you must've thought you were crazy having played very little rugby to say, I'm giving up my life in Australia to go over and then to back yourself to go in and say, I want to start. <laughs> and then, and then oh, start. Trust me, I, I listened to you telling me this going, what are you thinking? What were you thinking? But at the time I didn't even question it. It was just, that was it. I'm, I'm, this is the opportunity to take. And I think through my whole career, it was just, you know, opportunities would present themselves. But the, the difference is, is you have to take them. And it's not even just going, yeah, okay, I'll come over and play. Like, if you get the opportunity, you've got to take it, but you've got to take it with both hands and really ram it home. I think that was the sort of story of my whole career is yeah. there's always going to be opportunities. If you stay fit and you keep pushing hard, there'll be opportunities. But... 
Yeah. If you get an opportunity, it might be the only one. You don't know, you don't normally get two or three. You know, I mean, some yeah. of us do. But, um, it's, it's, it's rare. Do you know, I've spoken to a lot of players, Rob Herring, John Cooney, the list goes on. All players who, if something hadn't happened, which was lucky or just the right place at the right time, they may never have had a professional career. Like Rob, Rob was saying he was overworking in England at the time. It was the London Irish coach bumped into his old headmaster and said, our, our hooker for the seasons just got injured. Uh, his old headmaster said, oh, I know someone. That's <laughs> yeah. how Rob, Rob got into it. <laughs> but but, but, but it's, it's funny, and even hearing you talk about it, it's a fascinating insight into, into sort of how the mind of an athlete works, where you're saying opportunities present themselves. But it sounds like you very much went out and grabbed the opportunity and made the opportunity for yourself uh, in some ways, because some people would sit say they weren't given that chance initially, it was, it was hard to get into the team. They would have sat back and got, I'll play, I'll play club rugby and uh, see what happens. But you, you really went out, you wanted to play at a good level in, in this championship and uh, at a real like breeding ground for, for battle-hardened forwards. Uh, that, that's the impression I get. It's yeah. very f- physical league. And it's, it's probably as well, where I, I wouldn't say I get touchy about it, but when people, you talk to people and they're like, oh, you're so lucky, it just all happened for you. And I was like, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. <laughs> I've worked my absolute ass off. Yeah. Every, like, for years and years and years. And yeah. part of what was driving me was even from when I started, where people said, he'll never make it. He doesn't yeah. know what he's doing. He started too late. He's too old. Everything. Everything you could think of. And it was just more, it was also just that, like, I mean, talking to my wife now and stuff, where people don't see all the work. But, I mean, like I said, people say, oh, yeah, you know, went over and played for Ireland and then, you know, the Lions and all that. And I'm like, they didn't see me those first two years not playing at all for Ulster, training every day, week in, week out, trying to get better, go to the championship, trying to get better, come back, playing with Malone, trying to get better, you know, every day. And then, I mean, you know, you'd be in there for, even when you are playing with Ulster, you know, you play, I remember one of the Heineken Cup matches we played and we had a big game the following week and, I played, went to bed, got up the next day, couldn't stand up properly because the lower disc in my back had flared up. And I remember on that Saturday or Sunday, whatever it was, I was having to crawl around the house on my hands and knees because I couldn't stand up properly because we were pinching over my back. So my wife's sitting there going, just tell the coach you're injured, you can't play. I'm like, no, it's, this is the biggest game. I think could have been one of the games where it was like game six, so we, we won five so far. I'd, I'd have to think back, but... Um, and then the next day I could barely walk, but I sort of was a bit sort of subtle about it and training was pretty easy. So we went and did the videos and I probably took it easy. And then the next day it was just dosed of a painkillers. And you sort of just, I don't know, it's that competitive streak going again, going, you want to play every match and you want to, you want to compete and you want to make sure that you can have a crack at every team. And the people don't see a lot of the work. And yeah. I mean, what's, what's the saying? The harder you work, the luckier you get. It's one of those things where, you know, I mean, even I, guys like Rory, who I respect so much, like he's got his little sh- out the back with his shed and he's transformed his one of the harvesting machines or something into throwing a ball, you know, where he can throw. And he'd be throwing hundreds and hundreds of balls every day. You know, people don't yeah. see that. Yeah. You know, and then they'll be, it's, it's things like that that, 
you know, guides the amount of work you have to put in to be able to take those opportunities. Because yeah. that's that's the thing is an opportunity might come up, but you have to be ready and um, yeah, and yeah. you've got to be hungry as well. And I think sometimes it's just you know that fortuitousness doesn't just happen. It's yeah. it's constructed and and people sort of make it happen. But um, yeah. It's, yeah. a, it's a nicer story just to sort of say, oh, look, yeah, we're just lucky and everything just went to plan. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Circumstances arise, but unless you grab, if, unless you grab the opportunity, uh, as you say, uh, and it's a great, it's a great story and uh, inspirational, you know, for people to back themselves and have self-confidence and self-belief. And I want to touch a, a wee bit more on that, like the mental side of the game. Now, you backed yourself throughout from leaving Australia, backing yourself to go speaking to the coach and saying, look, give me a chance in the team. In terms of the mental mental health side of the game, but also the mental side generally, like the pressure and the scrutiny that you come under as a player, how did you cope with that? And how did it affect you whenever you received either criticism or you're left out of a, a squad or left out for a game that you want to play in? How did it affect you and how did you cope with that? Um, it, it, it did affect me a lot. I mean, admittedly, I probably didn't show a lot. I was very good, I think, at putting on a group of sale. And the problem is then is by internalising a lot of it, it ends up just festering away inside. So it's probably not the healthiest for a person's overall mental health. Um, I mean, I remember part of my issue with shop put even when I first started was I'd live in my... And I mean, I still do. People might know, know well know that I just live inside my head and there's always thoughts going on about all sorts of random stuff and I'll be thinking through every possible, like, scenario that could happen from any event, you know. Um, and I didn't, I didn't deal with it very well in the shop put because obviously you get three throws. You foul the first one and it's only two. And it's, oh, Jesus, what, what do I do? I've only got two left. And then if you mess up one, if you only got one throw left, what do you do? And, like, it's, like, exponentially worse. Um, and... So that was part of the problem with shot put. And then obviously with rugby, it was you do obviously get a little bit more time in games and you get opportunities to make it up. But I think I still very much um, lived in my head a lot in that. And, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people about it where you'll be even little things like reading the body language and of coaches of how they talk to you and you'll then be interpreting that as to indicate whether you're going to get picked or not on the team for that week by how they say hello to you on Monday morning and... Yeah. what the comments they've said to you after a match and then you're stewing on that for three or four nights and you don't sleep. And um, Because I was so competitive and wanted to improve and wanted to be the best, I tended to listen to everybody I could. Um, and I would, especially the coaches, and would take on a lot of their advice. And, I mean, the problem is is that one coach will say one thing and somebody, another coach will say something totally different. So it's then trying to work out, okay, how do I make both of these ideas fit into one? And, you know, personify these so that I can get picked to the next team. And, um, I mean, there was obviously a lot of criticism right, criticism right from the start. I always joke and say it's not healthy for a player to build a whole career on trying to prove people wrong because yeah. that's what I did. Um, but it worked for me, and I think you need that hunger and you need that little bit of a, I don't know if you want to call it a chip on your shoulder, but you need something yeah. driving you. Um, yeah. If it all comes too easy, then when it gets tough, you don't know how to earn it, you know what I mean? Because it's always just happened. And I've seen it quite a bit even since I've finished where kids coming out of high school and they've been tipped to be the next Wallaby or the next superstar, 
because it's always come so easy. So they haven't worked on their skills. They haven't ever had that knock of saying, no, you're not picked. No, we're not going to pick you in this team. So they haven't had to work for it. And then they get to that stage where they didn't have to work for it. They go, what do you mean? How how do I do this? I'm perfect. Everyone's told me I'm amazing. You know? Yeah. I had to work for everything right Mm -hmm. from the start. Um, Even from the academy of the Reds, I remember one of the S&C guys who's very experienced. Obviously, it's all 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds here, and there's this 24-year-old guy who shot put that's like twice the size of everyone else. And they're like, what are you you doing here, man? Like, um, and just... It's, um, it's tricky because I guess, like I said, I sort of used it as ammunition and I always had amazing friends in the squad that were so supportive and even later on in years like Trimble, Andrew Trimble and Robbie Diak, Roy Best. Like, I mean, it's, it's hard to name all of them because you, you, you become such close mates with so many of them. Um, but even, you know, like guys like Paddy Wallace and Darren Cave and they're all different characters and they all are very, very different personalities, but they all just add a little bit to the picture um, for that whole team environment and support. And it's just, um, it's sort of one of those things where whenever there's criticism out there, you know, and then you come back to the squad and somebody like Stevie Ferris would be sitting there beaming at you the next week and be just joking away and chatting as if nothing happened. You know, it's just, it's almost like you just revert back to what you know. And especially, I mean, the Ulster stuff, there was a little bit of criticism every now and then, but predominantly Ulster was very supportive, very positive. You know, there was always really, you know, it was very rare that you'd get torn apart or too, or too much criticism. Um, it was more then when it came to Ireland because you'd obviously be dealing with a lot of the Southern press and I find that the Southern press and the newspapers and stuff, they're tailoring their story for the market, which is south of the border generally, um, They'd be all Munster and Leinster supporters. Um, and, you know, this, this guy that's come over from Australia and now he's playing for Ireland and, um, you know, you don't sort of tick all the boxes and it's just it's an easy way to sort of find a bit of a scapegoat for certain things. And I just, I found there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of criticism with the Irish setup. Um, admittedly, I don't think I ever played my best rugby with Ireland. I think I was always insecure and self-conscious that, they were going to try and get me out of the team or my, my place in the team was never secure, I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you know, the quality of players that they have in that setup, you know, it, it's, it's fair enough that there's always going to be chance of somebody else getting picked. But I always um, struggled with that mental side of it with Ireland. I think definitely a lot more than Ulster. Ulster felt like home, was comfortable, knew the boys, knew what I could do, knew how the team worked. I mean, like you said, that... Teams, the team through 2011, 2012, and then everything just sort of was in sync. Everything just sort of clicked. You know, everyone yeah. knew, everyone else played. That team just just hummed along. It just never felt like work. You know what I mean? It was so yeah. much fun. And we just, I think obviously that Heineken Cup final against Leinster was probably just that step too far for us, where whether it was just the tactical or whatever it was, whether the mountain was just one step too far, but that team just hummed along. You know what I mean? Whereas, yeah. I think when you step outside that bubble and then with the Irish setup especially, and, I mean, obviously there was a hell of a lot of criticism and speculation around the British Irish Lions stuff as well, which was obviously a, an interesting story and a nice cameo. But even, obviously, some of the bigger rugby um, personalities from Ulster weren't overly positive and supportive of um, my involvement. But it's one of those things where sometimes you just seem to go, you, you're never going to have everyone love you. 
you know, never, everyone's never going to be um, your supporter, your biggest fan, but you need to have that trust and faith and just reliance on, I know that I've given it my everything and that I know that my close friends, so the Ulster boys, the guys who play within Ireland, um, especially the Ulster setup, have got your back. And you know that they will always be there to support you, standing next to you, you know, giving you a pat on the shoulder, an arm around, arm around the back, telling you, come on, let's go, and smile and joke and, you know, just be, be your mates and they're your family when you're there. Yeah. So, um, but it is tough. And I think I found it extremely, like, taxing with the Irish setup, which is also probably where the move to London Irish came from as well. So, um, and I mean, I was in and out of the team of Ireland, obviously accumulated a fair amount of caps in my time there, but like I said, never really felt like my place in that squad was secure. And it was always, am I in the squad? Not when's the squad picked and when are we playing? You know what I mean? So, um, I mean, saying that, the actual feeling of playing for that team and when you play well and when you win, I mean, like the Grand Slam series and things like that are amazing and totally different sort of way, like that feeling of how once you're in the team, how things go. But um, I think the overall picture for me was I found extremely stressful, really struggled with it. Um, I'd say my wife especially probably had to deal with all of it because rather than me being overly chatty or talkative about it to get it out once again like I said I'd live inside my head and I would internalize it all and I would just shut down I think the week after um that English test at Twickenham I probably said maybe half a thousand words to all week um just couldn't talk because it was just like careers over that's it we're done you know it was good while it lasted um and couldn't really see past it either and I really um it's probably funny to say, but I can really understand some guys when they get down that path and they get in a bad place and they can't get out of it because it's hard to see too far ahead from just the here and now. You know, the shutters come down and it's like, that's it. You know, and you can't, it's too hard to think about that next step and guys end up getting into that bit of a downward spiral and probably whether they don't have the support around them or whether they don't have the inner strength to just that inner belief that they can do it or whether it's just that nobody knows they're in that place to start with, which is the biggest problem with mental health, I think, especially where they don't talk about it. Nobody knows where somebody's head's at and that facade on the outside where people are really chatty and just getting on with things. It's like, no, we're just, you know, they're fine. We saw them today. They're chatting away. They're up training or whatever. Um, yeah, nobody really knows. So, yeah. um, for me, that valve, once I moved to London Irish, that was a big flicking the switch for me to really mm-hmm. let that valve off. And I really started to enjoy rugby, even though playing with Ulster was the ultimate pinnacle for me. You know, that run up to that Heineken Cup final for me with that team and some of those matches will, will easily be the highlight of my career. Um, yeah. Obviously, from an achievement point of view, you know, Ireland with the Grand Slam and the World Cup and the British and Irish Lions. From an achievement point of view, you know, you can't beat that. But from how you feel in the game point of view, you know, just feeling in in a, a good place, I think yeah. um, that Ulster run was, that was it, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's interesting to hear you uh, t- talk so honestly and in depth about uh, the mental side of the game, the pressure, the scrutiny that you come under. Uh, social media has got even worse than it, than it used to be. It's a cesspit. It's isn't it? absolutely uh, toxic. Absolutely yeah. toxic. And I mean, if you look at, uh, you probably, probably won't, but um, 
My social media accounts have been dormant since June 2017. I haven't made a single post on Instagram, Twitter. I, I, I don't even know how to log into my Twitter account anymore, I'll be honest. Um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Cause it, it, <laughs> it, it is a cesspit, isn't it? And, and particularly, you know, as, a, as an athlete, you will never, I don't think you'll ever benefit from reading it, but it seems, it seems like players are so tempted to find out what people have thought and Jake it's, Stockdale. It's, it's human nature. You know, yeah. it's human nature. I mean, yeah, like, he's, he's a perfect example. So, I mean, Jacob Stockdale is easily one of the most talented players in Ireland, definitely for the last five years, possibly, you know, for the last 10 years. You know, yeah. he's a natural, outstanding, world-class player. Sometimes you just, there's certain things that happen, you get it wrong, or some day you just have a bad day, you know? Yeah. The fact that he is then doubting his ability, he's shown how much he can do over such a long period, and one incident in one game, that that can ruin everything. But not only that, I mean, social media has become so pervasive these days, it's just taken over society, you know? You know, all the elections and chat and everything else that's going on, how much social media affects that whole fake news thing and, you know, yeah. the, the algorithms that keep people in their own little group think of yeah. ideas and, you know, the different types of stories. It's it's so hard to get out of that bubble and switch off from it. And I, the problem is as well as the players use it a lot for promotions and sponsorship and, yes. you know, it, it's part of the personality and what the public sees and, and everything, the bigger picture. So, it's hard, you can't really just totally shut it off. And also that it's almost called social media hygiene these days, a little bit like sleep hygiene, where getting into good routines and habits with it and almost that resiliency to be able to switch off from it and not pay attention to it. I mean, I don't know who has been able to do that. I'd be impressed to hear it because um, that would be the biggest goal of anyone's career, I think, is to be able to manage that properly. Yeah, I, I think it has to be used very intentionally, especially if you're in the public eye. Do you know, um, I, I think guys like Stephen Ferris, who they're media personalities, and they rely to some extent on a uh, branding of themselves as so this is. I, I, do you know, speaking openly and honestly about games and and giving their opinion on social media, and and that's that's fine. You know, it becomes easier once you stop playing to a certain extent. But for players, yeah. uh, it, it must it must take its toll to read negative uh, negative comments from people who don't know what they're talking about a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> it's it, 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 it's interesting uh, to hear as well about your motivations. You know, some people play to succeed, and some people play because they don't want to fail or they want to prove people wrong as well. And it's some combination of the two, it sounds like. Do you know that push-pull thing um, with you? Do you know one thing, that, that chip in your shoulder, and it's a, a recurring theme in people I've spoken to. They've always, so many people, John Cooney's a great example of that, where he's been told, you know, at very, he, he's been around uh, various provinces and told uh, you're, you're maybe not cut out for the highest level. And look look where he's uh, <laughs> look, look what he's achieved now and, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing as well I mean guys like John I mean you look at Jesus you get his highlight reel from Ulster from the last few years and you it'd be as good as any possible scrum half slash ball playing back in the world you know yeah. it's his highlight reel and I mean you know I remember people used to talk the same way about Ryan Pienaar. Um I mean I know that he sort of floats above the ground um, in most Ulster supporters' eyes, but 
saying that, he copped a lot of criticism in South Africa, um, even after he'd been at Ulster and went back to the South African team. You know, there was dispute about whether he should have been in the team or not and who should be ahead of him. And I mean, yeah. you look at what he did for Ulster rugby and he gave everything for Ulster. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He yeah. was he was living, breathing Ulster rugby, you know, for us and the team. Um, you know, it's just one, it's so easy to, it's easy, it's easy to be a critic, you know. Yeah. It doesn't take yeah. anything, it's invisible profiles and um yeah yeah but exactly. I, I think that's just unfortunately there's no way to get away from it it's just that's the that's way nice. the world has gone and um yeah. with technology and advancements and, and everything like that you know with so many good things coming about from technology and everything that's unfortunately probably one of the drawbacks that yeah it's just a side effect of of the human animal you know oh absolutely i know um and, and like uh, having stopped playing now uh, do you feel that you've gained perspective? Uh, I suppose whenever you're in that bubble, that rugby playing bubble, and it seems like it, it's so all-consuming, and you think that it, it, it's, it must seem like life or death sometimes, whether you have a good game or not, then you realise that, or maybe you realise this, maybe you don't, whenever you step out of the game, that people might discuss a game for 10 minutes at the pub, but it's not going to affect their lives. At the end of the day... Uh, and I, I, it's it's rare that... It's rare that any sort of memory... I mean, obviously, big games and I know there's certain football matches as well where there'll be certain incidents, which obviously get talked about forever. But um, most situations, yeah, it's, you know, it'll be in the news for a week or two or a couple of weeks or whatever, if that, and then it's gone. Yeah. And everyone's gone yeah. about it and moved on. And um, everything's finite and everything's, everything's sort of temporary, I guess, in this world. And, the, the way that everyone's attention span works these days is, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's the next new fad and, you know, people will be eating Tide Pods or something that will distract everyone from <laughs> what's happened the week before. But, um, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's um, I mean, the perspective I've gained since I've finished is just, obviously, when you're in it, it is everything. Um, yeah. And that's the problem is, especially from a mental health point of view, is, people don't realise it's not everything when they're in it because there's no way to get out of it when you're in it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. But when you take a step back, I mean, I'll be honest, I probably didn't really watch any rugby um, at all for a good year or two after I finished. Um, I mean, for the first six months after I retired, I was travelling, so we didn't really have the opportunity. And I just, I really needed the sort of decompression period just to go, okay, I need to step back and, um, I mean, I started playing a bit when I first came back to Australia and I've sort of helped out coaching a bit as well. But that bigger picture of where I'll still talk to people and they're like, oh, yeah, they'll watch every single rugby game and they're still fully immersed in it. Yeah. And I just, I had to take a step back for a bit to go, okay, I just need to. And now it's been the last year or two, I've really got that taste and that, that love of rugby back. Um, yeah. I love, like, especially now that my son's right into it, my family will sit down and we'll all watch some of the games. Um, and I really just love watching the players and the skill. And it's almost, it's funny now that I'll watch it and go, it's very hard to believe that I even used to be able to do that. <laughs> I used to be able to play, especially at, like, some of the international games, like the skill level and the speed and the strength and power. I look at it and go, geez, how did I ever, how did I ever, you know, get involved and compete at that level? But... Once again, it's all subjective. You know, when you're in it, you don't know any different. Yeah. Everyone's big and strong and training and fast and powerful, and that, that's just what it is. Um, I mean, 
it's, it's funny yeah. the, amount, the amount of ex-players you hear say that they go oh I couldn't do, couldn't do that now like they look at uh, rugby's become I mean obviously you you did and you could but it's almost like a, a, a disassociation uh, you're like it, it is yeah another another it, person almost you know as like a, an alter ego and yeah. I mean I know there was always the jokes about Angry Tom and stuff like that at Ulster, but um, <laughs> it is it is a bit of an alter ego where, like, I mean, admittedly, even when I used to step away when, and not be training and playing rugby, I mean, at Ulster, you'd probably see me down at Espresso Elements or somewhere reading a book and having a coffee and my lunch breaks a day off or, um, you know, when I was in London especially, I'd just go into the middle of the city and sit in a cafe all day on my days off and read a book. You know, that was... It wasn't like I was at home thinking about rugby and watching rugby and, you know, you do need to step away at some point. But, yeah, I think once you're totally out of it, um, I mean, some guys stay involved and they become coaches or they become pundits or so they sort of have to stay involved. And I think, I mean, you mentioned Stevie Ferris as well. Like Stevie Ferris has always been very honest and open, but I think, and, you know, he's, he's very clean cut as well. Like there's always black, there's black and white, you know, it's very, very little gray area in Stevie's mind. But then again, Stevie will listen to everyone else's point of view as well. Yeah. You know, Stevie's one of the few guys that will have very – I'd be surprised if he had ill will against anybody. You know what I mean? He's just he's the most friendly, lovable guy. Yeah, he's, he's just, great. You need guys like that. And I think the problem is these days as well, as you talk about social media and everything, everyone's just starting to shut down because there's cameras everywhere and everything's under the microscope. Nobody's – Everyone's afraid to actually have a personality anymore. Every, I mean, the one thing that I talk about with perspective is you watch post-match interviews now and it's just a string of cliches. Like they say nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Damage I do. halves and, you know, they've got this strong player, they've got a strong team and this. And like, <laughs> it literally cookie cutter out the, the post-match yeah. speech of what they say. And, you know, we'll have to look at the analysis and, you know, we'll be back I next know. week. And it's... It's funny because the problem is is that you can't really say anything controversial because mm-hmm. then it puts you in the limelight and possibly in trouble. But also yeah. guys are just afraid to do or say anything. I mean, obviously we, there's been certain events in Ulster Rugby in recent years that um, a lot of people like to forget about, but um, off the field especially. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where to to make sure that they don't get in trouble these days, guys just shut down. But you don't yeah. see anyone's personality anymore. You don't see anything mm-hmm. from anybody. Um, yeah. It's just almost cardboard cutouts off the pitch. And yeah. then, you know, the few guys that have a bit of pizzazz and a bit of, you know, chutzpah and personality and, you know, a bit of colour to them, they're the guys that really stand out. And I think, um, yeah. you know, the yeah. game needs the game needs guys like Stevie because... yeah. He's, he's what makes it interesting. You know, Absolutely. For me, in the squad, he's always, like I said, bouncing around, laughing, smiling, considering that a lot of the time he'd be three months, six months into heavy rehab for an injury or something to, to be able to bottle whatever mental strength and um, resilience he had would be amazing. Because yeah. for somebody, I, I've probably never met anyone that's struggled so much with injuries and that and be such a talent player and you bounce back and stay positive. I, yeah. I don't know how he did it. I'll be honest, I wouldn't have been able to do a third or a quarter of what he came back from and still stay positive about it. But, yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, it's 
it's one of those things where I think people are just afraid to, to express themselves and be themselves yeah. these days. Oh, 100%. And the odd person that does, as you say, there's like Ellis Genge recently came out and he did it. It wasn't even a massively controversial interview. I think he, he, he drank a beer during an interview. Yeah. And uh, he, he came in for some criticism for that. but Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, Joe jo Marlowe's another one, but then again, some of the things Joe Marlowe's done, <laughs> yeah, sure, I, I tend to agree. It's maybe not the right thing to be doing, um, especially not on camera when everyone's watching. But, I mean, each to their own at, their, at, at home with the door closed. But it's one of those things where it, it is also a fine line, I guess, between... And a lot of it comes down to political greatness and everything. You know, the landscape has changed even from 20 years ago for what yeah. guys could and couldn't do on the pitch, let alone off yeah. the pitch. And the rugby teams and the rugby rituals and things that used to happen off the pitch, the team initiations and everything. Yeah. 20, 30 years ago from that amateur to professional era compared to now, it's, it's another world. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. hard to judge because the players and the environment and what they experience these days is, is so far away from what, guys we're dealing with 20, 30 years ago. But, yeah, um, yeah. It's hard to sort of link the two. 100%. I know uh, it was James Haskell's book that I was um, reading recently. And um, again, it just seems like a world apart from uh, relatively clean-cut guys <laughs> that you get now. Well, you know, uh, considering, considering some of the personalities he's been involved with, I mean, he's another guy where, sure, I, there'll be a lot of people that maybe don't necessarily agree with him or even like him for what he says and how he acts. But... At least he's himself, you know, he's yeah, not afraid yeah. to be himself. And I think, um, you know, if anyone's got some amazing stories, James James would have some of them, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think a, a big thing about the Ulster squad now is with almost, and I've been lucky enough to, to interview a lot of the guys, and without exception, like, they're all great lads. And it makes a huge difference, do you know, that dynamic in the dressing room, do you know, of uh, characters, like really good characters who seem like they genuinely get on. And I just want your, like, I don't keep you too much. I can sit and ask you questions all day. Oh, no, 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 I've got nowhere to be. I've got nowhere to be. Perfect. So, oh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving the chat. But um, in terms of like the team dynamic, you've given a couple of examples. Stevie Ferris brings great atmosphere to the squad. I'm sure there's lots of guys, but in your view, what makes like a good team dynamic? Tell me a wee bit more about the types of players that you want to see in your team. Maybe some examples of players that you've played with who brought an energy and leadership to the team, but also about the coaches and what, what who are the best coaches that you've worked with and, and perhaps who are the not-so-good coaches as well might be interesting. I've probably, I was going to say my time in, between Ulster and London Irish I think I went through probably four, four or five coaches at Ulster and four at London Irish within ten or eleven seasons. So it's yeah. a fair, fair transition rate. Um, yeah. I mean, from a player perspective, I think, and it, it, it sort of touches on that leadership too. Obviously, you need a strong core and strong core of players that are in leadership positions, or at least project um, that aura of leadership. And I always can sort of compare the Irish squad as well, and guys like Rory obviously was, was the leader for us. I mean, um, I think Johan was captain for a bit as well, but Rory was always the, the local guy that was there the whole time I was there, was the captain for the last few years. And he was just strong leader, competent player, very, very hard worker. So it's always those, a number of those sort of abilities all linked together where they're normally one of the hardest workers, but when they're, for as serious they are on the pitch, 
they're always part of the crack off the pitch. You know, you need they need to be a part of it all. And I mean, the best guys and Paul O'Connell was the same with Ulster, with with Ireland, where he was. You cross that white line, and it's serious. We are training, and we're giving it one hundred percent, absolute everything. We're putting everything into it. You walk off the pitch, and he's going to be in the middle of all the crack. You know what I mean? And it was the same at Ulster. I think the guys that made up that. You need that sort of skeleton or framework of the team that the rest of the team can fit in. And, um, you know, those those guys like Stevie, like Rory, um, Paddy Wallace. I mean, there's a number of guys, Trimby, where... And, and obviously some of the younger guys after those initial guys came through were guys like Chris Henry and Stalwarts. You know, even guys like Darren Cave who... Um, you know, the stalwarts of the team where they're always there or thereabouts and they're, they're all very different personalities, but they add something to the bigger picture. And um, it's that sort of combination of willing to give everything for the team and um, obviously being very, very good players themselves, but um, also being able to listen and take on advice and, you know, knowing that balance between giving the guys a kick up the ass or giving them a slap on the bum, you know, between positive and let's call it constructive criticism. And um, I, I just think the team as well, the team's going to be comfortable in how it plays and what we're trying to achieve. So everyone needs to be on the same page. You know, if people know what's our goal, what, how do we play, what's our sort of approach to rugby in general, how are we trying to play, what's the, what's the sort of strategy with our team and how does our team work? And I think if you can line up that style of play with the actual roster of players you've got, then you're going to have a lot of players who are comfortable because they know what they're doing and they know they can do what they need to as well. They know they can execute a game plan. And I think that from a, that's sort of getting into the rugby reads a bit, but you have players that can do that, then they can be themselves. They're a bit more comfortable. They work hard because they know exactly what they've got to do. And that sort of builds that, I don't know, momentum or you know, the, the feeling within the team. And I think, um, I mean, I sort of came into a team that was obviously just won the Celtic League and it was a great vibe with it. But then there was, like you said, a bit of a dip, changeover coaches, changeover coaches again. Um, and then changeover coaches again. But then we, we obviously got Brian McLaughlin in there who, um, for whatever people want to say about his coaching skill, I mean, he was very, very experienced um, from the skills coach was with Ireland for a while before he came back to Ulster and that. But his big thing was just the team environment and the yeah. team culture. But mm-hmm. even these days, I mean, it's business and everything. People talk about team culture and we're going to build culture and all that. But and and doing all these different exercises and that, you can't manufacture culture. You know, it has to grow organically within a team on its own. You can't force it. You know, so how you do it, I don't know. I have no idea, but it happened at Ulster and with him, um, whatever, whether it was keep the game plan simple and people just play to their strengths or whatever it was, you know, whether he empowered the right people, whether he gave the right people support and positive confidence, um, that culture just grew to the point where boys really felt in a good place, you know, physically, mentally, um, on the pitch. So that, regardless of what he was like as a coach, as a strategic coach, I think, from a team culture and ethos point of view, Brian McLaughlin made a massive difference. I think it was really, really noticeable. Um, And then I think with Ireland, the big thing with, I mean, from my whole time with Ireland, pretty much it was Declan Kidney. Um, So 
for whatever people have decided, Declan, he gave me all my caps. So I have nothing to complain about. Um, and he was another one where he surrounded himself with very good technical coaches, mm. but he was more a man manager. And I mean, I can't remember who it was that told me. It was one of these funny things where you'd always go in with Declan and talk to him about the team selection. And you could sort of tell that he was going to drop you from the team or he wasn't going to pick you. But you'd go in really angry and upset and sort of be quite anxious about telling him why you should be picked. And he would be able to chat to you and talk you around so that when you left his office, you'd be convinced as well that the selection he's made is right and you probably didn't deserve to be in the team. So whatever he did and whatever riddles he was telling or spells he was casting, um, yeah. and it wasn't that he wasn't telling people the truth. I think it was just he was very good with people. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to that emotional intelligence with coaches. Um, yeah. They can talk to people. They know what people's perspective is. And I think uh, from my background, obviously, being psychology in that, in that if people can understand somebody else's point of view and somebody else's perspective, it puts you miles ahead. Um, because you need to understand how it's going to affect somebody else's point of view. See, I mean, I always joke about the scenario where a player walks in on Monday morning and a coach walks in and the player says hello to the coach and the coach looks at him and ignores him and walks on. So for the rest of that week, the player is paranoid, freaking out, thinking he's going to get dropped from the team, he's had a rubbish game, the coach doesn't like him, what's he going to do if he doesn't get a contract? His girlfriend's going to leave him if he doesn't get a contract. His family aren't going to think he's any good. All this, right? The coach has just had a fight with his wife at home about one of the kids, whatever it is, and he's annoyed and he comes into work and he's still annoyed and he didn't even hear the player say hello to him because he's worried about what's going on at home with his wife. So that's where I talk about the scenario where that emotional intelligence psychology of even coaches, how they how their body language and their communication skills affects the whole team and a whole a player's life, his whole life, okay, is based around rugby, training, selections, next week, next match, next season, next contract. Um, it, it's, it's phenomenal the, the different, the knock-on effects things like that can have and the amount of time people spend, like, like I said, a player can spend a whole week stressing, not sleeping, not eating, about a team selection because it's a big game or this is the one game where his parents are going to be out or this is the one yeah. game that, you know, whatever it might be, the, the Irish selectors might be there. Um, and the knock-on effect it has, you know. So, yeah. um, I mean, that emotional intelligence from a coach's point of view is, is enormous. But I don't know. I, did, I felt I was very lucky. Um, I was very lucky at Ulster with that team that we had. It was a very special team. I mean, I have some very close friends still um, obviously, a few guys I mentioned, but, um, you know, guys like Andrew Trimble and Rory and Chris Henry, who I will probably be close friends with forever. Um, and also, probably even closer again, is the guys that I was friends with right from the start. So guys like Scott Young and Tim Barker, who were talented players, maybe didn't end up kicking on or, you know, um, obviously weren't um, in, the, in the squad for years and years and years, but had very good careers. Um, that I sort of got to know when I first got there and made me feel at home. Um, yeah. And they were the yeah. guys that I'll probably never forget how special and how um, much they put into me helping me settle in. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting to hear about uh, characters and how you need 
characters in that dressing room, number one, leaders, but also just on a personal level, people who get on and how important that is to the team dynamic, um, that you feel you're, you're in a, an environment um, which um, where you're all p- pulling towards the same goal and um, you get you get on with the guys on a personal level. And, and also about the coaches as well. Do you know, um, having having experienced so many coaches, I'm sure you've learned a lot about different styles and uh, and with your particular interest in psychology, um, it must be uh, interesting. And I love that, to be honest, I think the biggest thing that I value over everything else is just honesty. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I... By the end of my career, I couldn't care less whether people loved me, hated me, whether they thought I was amazing or whether they thought I was terrible. As long as they were honest with yeah. what they thought of my performance and what they planned on doing with team selections, you yeah. can deal with it because you know where you stand. The biggest problem is people, and coaches especially, I think, suffer from it where they don't like giving bad news. They don't like telling guys they're not picked or they don't like telling them... I just don't like your style of play. I don't like yeah. how you play, so yeah. I'm not going to pick you. And they don't have that self-belief or confidence as a coach to tell people that. So they sort of say, oh, look, you're doing really well, you're working hard, but we're, just, we're going to give this guy a chance this week. Because that doesn't give the player who's been dropped anything to work on. You can sort of say, at least you can go, look, this and this let you down last week. Um, you didn't do it very well, so we're going to give this guy a go, so you need to work on these things and just yeah. make it nice and clear. Whereas most of the coaches, I think, really struggle to be honest with players. Um, yeah. Sometimes you need to just tie your opinion to the mast and just go, look, this is what I want, this is what I thought, and if you can do this, you'll get picked, and if you can't do this, we're going to pick somebody else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even just, like I said, this, I, I like the way this guy plays better than you. You know, other coaches yeah. might think that you're a better player than them, but for me, I like this guy, so I'm going to pick him. So until you can do this and this better than him, you're going to yeah. be on the bench and you're not going to be in the squad. Yeah, um, I know. It's good, it it's good. Yeah. very, very rare to get full frontal honesty from coaches, which it's obviously a learned skill as well. And it's tough. Yeah. It's a really tough skill to be. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to give people bad news. Nobody wants to be the prick or whoever it is to go, no, you, you dropped this week because you were rubbish or whatever. But um, yeah. for me, that that was the one factor above all else that, you know, players with other players being honest yeah. and coaches being honest with players. That's that's so interesting. That's exactly, I spoke to Andy Ward and I've spoken to a number of that 99 winning squad. I always always love asking them what was special about that team, and the, the same answer always comes back, and it's that we were honest with each other, and they were they were friends, yeah, and they felt that there was a level of trust which had been established, yeah. which allowed them to give constructive criticism, and they could do it. Uh, you, they could be banter about it. They could just say, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, well, and that's that, the thing, that, you, know, that, you know, yeah. If your mates with your mates, you can be honest with them. You can, you know. You can yeah. tell them good things, but you can tell them bad things as well. But they're still your mates, and, and yeah. That's, yeah, that's a huge, huge thing. Yeah, I suppose you care enough about your teammates that, and you care enough about the team that you have to be honest. I think it's it's whenever you, you're maybe not you haven't fully bought into to the culture and, uh, and to the squad environment that maybe you wouldn't you'd say it's not worth the hassle. Do you know? Um, no. Well, I know, I know a lot of players are also afraid to be honest because they're yeah. worried then that they're going to get chopped down if they speak up or they're going to get chopped down because 
they don't necessarily agree with the consensus or they're not yes men for the coaches because the coaches want this. And if you have anything to say against that, then you're probably not going to get picked or out of favour or whatever. So, yeah, I think players players wouldn't necessarily... And it can, you know, I'm sure it has in the past. It's probably affected a lot of players when they've spoken up. It may have cost them selections and, and contracts and everything. But I think the best squads I've been in is where people have the support and feel comfortable enough, to be honest, with everybody, yeah. coaches as well, yeah. Yeah. And the final, final couple of things I just want to ask, and you've touched on this already, well, I want to ask more generally, because we talked about sort of low lights and re- really hard hard times in your career. Like any sports career will be a roller coaster. I have no doubt about that. And uh, we talked, as I say, a bit about the lose. Tell me about the highlights and tell me a bit more about playing for the British Lions. Do you know what circumstances led to that amazing achievement? Must be a very proud moment, a very memorable moment. Uh, imagine that ranks uh, quite high up. But tell me a, a bit more about your, your sort of sporting highlights, whether it's a particular game or a moment. Um, so the best feeling I ever had during a match where you feel like you're in flow. So obviously, me high, chick semi high, talks about flow within sport and, and performances and you're just in the moment. Um, that flow feeling for me was the monster game lead up to the Heineken final series where we beat Munster and Thurman Park. That was from a, a genuine visceral feeling within a game. That was the best feeling ever. Um, closely followed by the Ireland win of the Wallabies in the World Cup. Um, from a achievement point of view, I think obviously that series with Ulster um, where we went to the to European final it's, it's tough because obviously it wasn't topped off with a win. Um, you know, I mean, we, we sort of did everything but. But, um, I mean, that, I guess, achievement from a team point of view, I feel like we really achieved all that season, even though we didn't quite win it. Um, bloody Leinster, you know, they beat us the following year and the domestic comp as well. And they bloody won everything and they're winning everything <laughs> still, aren't they? So it's one of those things it's hard to complain. Um, but from an achievement point of view, obviously, um, I mean, playing with Ireland through that um, Grand Slam was amazing. But I don't think I'd been playing long enough. And whether people say it's because you um, did grow up in Ireland or whatever, that you couldn't appreciate how significant it was. I appreciate how significant it was now. But also, Ireland has been, you know, well, lucky or whatever you want to call it, enough to win Grand Slam since then as well. So we've also beat the All Blacks since then and you know, achieved so much in the last 10 years of rugby. Um, but that Grand Slam series for me was amazing, just of that tingly feeling for weeks on end of just, once again, everything just fell into place. It didn't feel like hard work. The team was just humming along and almost everything was just happening as it should. Um, from uh, obviously pinnacle point of view, you know, playing for the Lions, I mean, that's, you, you can't go any higher than that. Obviously, there's, you know, playing for tests and winning test series and, you know, you, you can keep adding on whatever it may be. But playing for that, that team was amazing um, and genuinely was never even in my thoughts. Like I said, for that, um, that series in Australia, I, I'll be honest, I hadn't even been following it as much because we just finished the Irish tour of America and Canada. So I was trying to sort of switch off a little bit um, and probably win my 
my wife over again to just enjoy a holiday together rather than being away for weeks on end. So um, that for me was was amazing. Um, obviously, the whole experience was probably soured a little bit by the media, social media, um, and everything that surrounded it. Once again, it's a bit like my career in general where I'll sort of say that I earned that spot. Um, people can say it was fortuitous or you were lucky or whatever. Um, I had just started for Ireland in an international test a week or two previous. I mean, admittedly, Ken Healy was already in the Lions, so he was our first choice loosehead for Ireland, no doubt. Um, but we just we just played our series in um, America and Canada. I'd come off a test start, you know, gone on holidays. Um, that was pretty much it. So um, people sitting there talking about, oh, whatever, it didn't deserve it. And, I mean, they had how many, four or five loose head injuries as it was? I'm like, you, you're working your way down the list here pretty well. You know, who, who, who else? There wasn't really too many other people. I mean, I think Joe Marler had just started peeking his head through with the, with the English team, and he was the third-string English loose head. Uh, Paul James was second or third-string loose head for Wales. Um, and obviously um, uh, Ireland had... Um, Dave Kilcoyne. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. He'd obviously been playing with Ireland as well. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things where you sort of look at who else, who were the next caps off the rank? Um, and you probably could have thrown a blanket over a lot of us. You know, we're all, we'd all played international rugby. Everyone would probably back themselves to be good enough and the next person to be available. Um, the fact that I was in Australia was probably what got me over the line. Um, but regardless, I had been working my whole career for that you know and like I said it's one of those things where you work your ass off your whole career to be able to take opportunities and I think that was the opportunity to be able to take now admittedly it was playing a midweek game and you were coming off the bench and you were there because they didn't want to play who was potentially going to be starting in the tests for the second and third test of the Lions um, and also the fact that they had a, a number of injuries like obviously um Alex Corsero was going to be coming back from injury as well, so I was hoping he'd be fine, but he still wasn't fit to play. So there was a number of factors playing into it, but realistically, um, I don't really care what people say. I earned the opportunity anyway. Um, I earned at least to be in, in the discussion. Um, like I said, they'd already had five or six other lucids in the squad ahead of all of us anyway, so it wasn't like they were picking me ahead of anyone else who yeah. realistically should have been in the squad. Um, but saying that, like I said, um, that was still a whole lot of my career with regards to accomplishment-wise. I mean, it was amazing. I just remember, I mean, the story, I've told the story a number of times about getting the call about being picked um, and being invited down where we were on the Gold Coast. Um, the kids were quite young. They had been in the bath. They were running around the house naked, you know, slipping all over the floor. We'd ordered takeaway and um, because... Uh, the, the takeaway door rang as I was sort of listening to a voicemail. Um, my wife went to get the takeaway and I'd had a few missed calls thinking it was the boys who were on the Irish tour that were now off, just prank calling me and leaving voice messages saying, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and then had a, a voice message from um, Guy Richardson, who was a, t- a team manager at the time. Um, I knew who Guy was, but I just sort of thought the guys were stirring things up. And then obviously had a, had a call from Michael Carney, um, Mick Carney, who was the Irish team manager, who sort of said, no, they, 
they they want you to come down, you know. Yeah. So pack pack your bags, you know, you'll be there'll be a car to pick you up to take you to the airport first thing tomorrow morning. Um, yeah. And at that point where I was talking to Mick, it was when my wife came back with a takeaway, the kids had run around screaming and she's looking at me as if I just had news that my one of my parents had passed away. because um, I was still sort of stuck in no man's land. Because like I said, it was one of those things that was never in contention. It was never even on on the agenda or thoughts at all. It was yeah. so, you know, um, there's certain things that I've always said I wanted to achieve and you'd aim for. And I guess that was so far, it was so high above my expectations that it wasn't even in, in, in the picture. Um, so to be able to do that was the ultimate um, for me. Um, in Australia, every all of my friends and family in Australia, because there wasn't a lot of the negative press around it, were amazing and it was, mm-hmm. it was so lovely. Um, the, yeah. the, and to be honest, friends, teammates, everyone from Ulster were amazing as well. Absolutely amazing. So um, couldn't top it off. Um, and, and I guess it was just joining that team too. I just, the one thing I remember from that, other than the infamous um, court session where Zebes had to call um, his coach and tell him he wanted to be captain. Um, <laughs> that was amazing. But yeah. other than that, I just remember first walking into the team room and seeing Brian O'Driscoll, Adam Jones, you know, Mike Phillips, Paul O'Connell, you know, the best players in the Northern Hemisphere. And it was, it was a little bit like you said, you like you disassociate, you're sort of out-of-body experience. Like you're walking in... And it's almost like one of those caricature cartoons where they literally pick the best, all the best players for the last 10 years on the normal atmosphere in one room and you're just walking in and, like, it's one of those pinch yourself moments where you're like, this is it. You're in here. Like, and I guess that was where I sort of first walked in and didn't feel like I belonged. I'll be honest with you. I was like, this, this is surreal, you know. Um, and then trained with the guys, played with the guys, and by the end of it, they sort of had a chat and said, so what's your plans? Are you, are you going to be hanging around just in case we have another injury? You know, we may still need you or at least for training, whatever. And I said, I'd be staying in Australia. And I think they were tossing up whether for me to stay in the squad or to sort of go back to on holidays and then they could call me if they needed to. By that point, I didn't want to leave. You know, I'll be honest, I, I didn't want to go anywhere else. Like I was in, I, don't, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche saying you're in heaven, but this was like... For a rugby player, this was the pinnacle and the happiest place you could possibly be. Um, And I was absolutely started by that point. I was starting to really soak it up and absolutely love it. Um, And that's why it was a little bit sad because they said, okay, well, we'll let you go back to your family and everything, which was probably safer, I think, for my own (laughs) relationship, status, and well being in the long run. But um, from a selfish rugby player's point of view, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave. But um, I sort of sampled and tasted what it was like to be out there wearing that red jersey and getting your number. And, I mean, you know, I've got my cap now, which is stored away in a box deep in the cupboard somewhere. But, um, yeah, it, it's still surreal. Like, I, I touched on it as well. It was a bit surreal with that Grand Slam experience through 2009, and it's a, a little bit similar with that Lions Tour where because at the point in my career with the Grand Slam when I – was thrust into this mix of this first Grand Slam in 61 years. It was so far beyond my expectations for that time. I look back now and go, 
okay, you know, maybe a few years on, you probably would have hoped you were involved or whatever. And the same with the Lions. Like, I look back now and go, it was so far beyond expectations that it was just, yeah, it, it, it was sort of surreal. So, yeah, um, it's, it's one of those things. Like I said, it was, um, it will always, you know, I'll always have the, the jersey and the cap that I can sort of, but they're for me. Um, yeah. It's not... I mean, that side of my career, and like I said, it's probably, like I said, it was tainted a little bit by some of the press and the media, but for me, the rugby stuff and the rugby achievements, unfortunately, a lot of guys say it's for family and for their parents and this and the other, but um, I'm going to be honest and say my rugby career was for me. It was to prove to myself I can do what I what I set my mind out to and to be able to sit there and, you know, you can sort of hold your jersey and hold that cap and look at it and go, I earned this. Um, yeah, it's it's for me, and it's enough, you know. Yeah, yeah, so good to hear. It's a remarkable career, uh, you know, having started so late to then go on and play and 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 start for one of the best Ulster teams in in living memory, one of the golden generation of of Ireland as well, and then the British Lions just to top it all off and to get there and um, through um, that that unique combination of hard work and talent and uh, unbelievable story and I loved hearing about it and the final thing I want to ask you and I really promise we'll let you go after this is uh, what, what, what's your relationship with Ulster now do you follow the team and do you know what are your sort of hopes expectations for Ulster uh, and also just very finally what are, what are you up to now and I'm sure people are very interested to hear do you know what you're doing now you've you're, you're no longer angry, Tom. You're, you're sort of uh, <laughs> had, had to go into your alter ego of. Uh, no, I work, I work in an office. I work in an office now, so I'm probably passive aggressive email. <laughs> um, no, I um, so I work as a research impact coordinator for University of Queensland. Um, my role is very much involved with the benefits of research, the tangible benefits in the community. So. Obviously, a lot of research focuses on publications and citations and um, grant applications and funding and that sort of research cycle. But um, I love my job because I get to try and quantify how the research benefits everybody, um, whether it be saving organisations and governments a fortune because of engineering research to do with, you know, the mathematical modelling of chemicals in, in the sewage treatment or um, how vaccines such as the UQ oxid vaccine and that could have in an, in an alternate universe saved a bunch of lives or, um, you know, it's the, the sort of quantification, engagement, promotion of that, that research benefits and also um, trying to help support researchers improve, um, I guess, the returns on, on their research, you know, that they can plan their research to have a greater benefit to the community. Um, yeah. Obviously nothing to do with rugby, um, but I sort of came back from the, I finished my master's actually, a research master's my last couple of years with London Irish. Mm -hmm. um, I had started my master's in Australian organisational psychology and expected to, to finish that. Obviously I then changed tack and did a, my master's in performance psychology, so all around um, performance, high elite level performance um, and the psychology of, you know, pre-performance routines and, and everything involved with um, before and after, you know, match performance scenes and everything. So um, 
that was my plan was to come back and start working as a psychologist. Um, in Australia, there's a lot of paperwork and I would have needed to do another 12 months as a provisional psych before I could become accredited officially in Australia. And in the end, I just needed to get a job because we wanted to get a mortgage and buy a house and just get back to the daily grind, you know. So um, I started working in a, in a just a basic liaison officer position at the graduate school and I've worked my way up in a few different roles to this role now that I started earlier in the year that I absolutely love um, and it's just really interesting um, yeah. because I get to I get to chat to researchers about everything that they do and, and how everyone benefits. So that's what I do now. Rugby-wise, um, I've been involved with the University of Queensland rugby team um, since I came back. I played a little bit that first season. Um, funnily enough, also full cycle. The first season I played with UQ, we made the grand final and lost. Um, the season I played with them again, we made the grand final and lost. Um, and that was 2005 and 2014. Or no, 2000 and, sorry, uh, 18. So there was like 13, 14 years between grand finals at UQ and we lost both of them. So uh, considering we lost two finals with Ulster as well, maybe I'm, I'm a bad luck player after all. <laughs> um, so that was it. And I've sort of helped out coaching a bit. But then I've decided now my kids are just finally, they'll both be moving to high school next year. So um, they're a lot more uh, mature and self-sufficient and older, so I could probably take rugby a little bit more seriously now. So I've decided that this year I've just started probably getting involved coaching a little bit more serious. I've actually changed clubs to another club called Brothers in Brisbane who I've taken on a bit more ownership with regards to the, the formal forwards set-piece coach role. So yeah. um, I don't necessarily want to become a coach. I don't see myself as a coach, but I think over the years, the sort of knowledge and experience and technical expertise that I've amassed and have been lucky enough to be exposed to, I think would be a waste to not be able to pass some of that on. So yeah. um, obviously in Australia, there's a lot of very good athletes and a lot of very good rugby players, but there's not as much of a focus on set piece. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely not regarding scrum and, and malls and things like that. So I think... Um, I tend to have a bit of a unique view over here about certain things. So if yeah. I can help some kids and, you know, pass on some of that knowledge, then, then all the better. So yeah. that's sort of how I'm involved with rugby anyway. Other than that, um, my kids both start high school next year and um, just working away, same old time. Yeah, yeah. And have you kept up with Ulster? Are you able to watch the games over there or is that just... I'm I've, sure I've you're watched a, bit, a few of them, yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean... It, the biggest thing is just the time difference, realistically. Yeah, true, um, true. Yeah. But, um, I have some of the bigger games and, and that I have sort of kept an eye on, whether it is just keeping an eye on the news feed or keeping in touch with guys like Andrew Trimble or, you know, there's a, a bit of a group of guys that I'd stay in touch with with WhatsApp where um, they sort of keep me in touch with everything sort of Ulster related. Um, so I would still, I'd still stay in touch. And, I mean, obviously there's certain guys as well, like, you know, like John Afar and Pedri Vonnenberg and guys like that who... I mean, John's getting younger the longer he plays, by the look of it. So, yeah. again, if I, if I was getting paid what John was, I'd still be playing. As well. So, um, and I mean, Pedri is is now living in America and working. But a, a lot of those guys from that sort of you know that team we had through the years, I would sort of stay in touch with, and um, you know, everyone sort of living their lives and moving on. But um, it will always be a very very special sort of time. I mean, that was a lot of my rugby career. The time yeah. in Ulster with, with the Belfast boys. So. Yeah, oh, that's good. 
Good to hear. Good to hear. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time, your honesty, and the level of detail you went into about uh, sort of the hard times as well, uh, how much of a roller coaster professional sport can be. And uh, I think I speak on behalf of Ulster fans and I say you're like really, really fondly remembered as a great Ulster player and a legend of the club and yeah, a great lad as well. So thanks so much for your time and I really appreciate it. Uh, any, anytime and um, you know, hopefully sooner or later I will get back over to Belfast and um, I mean it is Kingspan now, it's not Ravenhill anymore so hopefully sooner yeah. or later I'll take, um, take the family and the kids and um, my son's a big rugby fan as well. Um, Probably yeah. more talented basketball player, to be fair, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, and don the officer jerseys and go back to watch a home game down at, um, at Kingspan one day, hopefully in, in the next few years. But um, then, obviously once everything settles down with yeah, the know, and everything. Yeah, I know. I know, fingers crossed, it won't be too long now, but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to get used to calling it Kingspan, isn't it? But um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah oh, thanks. It's one of those things, I guess. I know. Well, thanks again, Tom. Really appreciate your time and uh, great to speak to you. It's a re- real pleasure to, to get chatting to you. No, no, no. Thanks for the opportunity, Peter. And um, yeah, like I said, anytime. Um, like I said, it's, it's really nice sometimes, especially now, uh, to be able to talk about all the times that I've so.